Direct from Montreal, Canada, this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Welcome to this episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon. Joining me on the phone from, well, uh, we don't know, Dirty Shirley, Sweeten Lynch, Dawkins, Lynch Mob, Ultraphonics, I, I don't know. It's guitarist George Lynch, and, and we love George, but... But my lord, he has been in a, a ton of bands and projects over the years. It's hard to uh, to keep uh, to keep track. And luckily, luckily, I'm not uh, collecting uh, band shirts because if I did, I'd have a closet full of uh, different T-shirts with uh, no band. So anyway, uh, but we love George. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding around. Uh, this, of course, is a Mitch Marathon Month, the holiday edition, and uh, well. I sort of just want to get right into the interview, but before we, we do that, let me just mention a, a couple of things. In um, early uh, 2020, we've got some uh, new albums uh, coming out. We've got the the new Thunder coming out. I believe it's going to be a March or April release. We do have that triple bill uh, of two 70s bands and an 80s band that is going to announce a European... Uh, sorry, <laughs> in, incorrect... They are going to announce an American tour in January, so keep your eyes peeled for that. Another triple package, and it is bands that I love, so you will perhaps uh, love it as well. Uh, we do have this Dawkins Lynch Mob, Lita Ford. Now, yesterday, uh, Doro was talking about a special project with Lita Ford. Today, we're talking about this tour. And uh, I asked George about the tour. The tour's been announced. The uh, The artwork has been all over the internet. You know, uh, Dawkins Reunion... Uh, Lynch Mob, uh, Lita Ford, and, and the concept is uh, Lynch Mob will do a set, Dawkins will do a set with a new band, and of course the encores, probably the big songs, will be done with uh, Don and George. And I asked George about it in the interview, and he went, eh, I'm not so sure. We'll see. And it's like, but but it's been announced. Mm, I'm not so sure. We'll see. So uh, listen to his answer. It's interesting. Uh, see if you can pick up some details and see if you get a different sense as to what's going on from what I got. Uh, what else was I going to say? Oh, yeah, you know, huh. I was talking about uh, upcoming new albums. Uh, yes, uh, the first quarter shall also will also see, most likely, unless delayed, a new Bon Jovi album. I was in uh, New York in November, had a nice chat with Obie O'Brien. The band was in town checking out final mixes of the album. So given the traditional setup, you know, record company, print, blah, 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 marketing, you're probably looking at uh, May 2020 for a new Bon Jovi, which is perfect because that usually leads you into the summer months of touring and so on and so forth. And it's nice to tour on the back of a new album. Um, but there, there's some other albums that are coming out uh, that I know are coming out in uh, March, April, May, and I'm just completely, completely blanking on it. But guess what? It is Mitch Marathon Month, the holiday edition, so I will be back tomorrow with another episode, and uh, perhaps by then... My brain will go, ah, yes. Anyway, without further ado, here is a guitar hero. The one, the only, le seul, unique, George Lynch. We are speaking with the guitarist George Lynch. The latest album is Dirty Shirley, but there is also some great news in the world of Lynch Mob and Dawkins. So uh, let us say a bonjour, as we say in Montreal, to the one, the only, George Lynch. Bonjour, George. How are you? Oh, thank you. You're bilingual. Of course, I live. Where, I'm in Montreal, so we have to be. Oh, okay. Well, you, 
English as a second language. Well, technically my third. Technically my third. I learned I learned Danish first because my mom's Danish, but uh, Dan- Danish, which I forgot now, and then French and then uh, English. Yeah, so no. Um, Dutch is a beautiful, beautiful language. It's, 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 I like it because it's not guttural at all. And there's not too many consonants. No, in fact, a, a lot. No, but a lot of the a lot of the Scandinavian languages are are nice because uh, well, actually, they mostly they speak English when they're around me. But uh, right, but, they have like twenty six letter words that are almost all consonants and abbreviations for the word dog. Yeah, pretty much. It's a really actually. hard guttural language. Yeah, yeah, they're. Uh, they're I, I don't know how those language de- how those languages develop. They're so incredibly. Uh, obtuse, but uh, but okay. Let's let us get over to a dirty Shirley. This this is another project from Frontiers. You have been involved with many. Uh, talk to me about the involvement with this one. And is it a a band? Is it just a, a, a one shot? How did it sort of come together? Well, it's a project um, in the sense that you know initially it's one album. That's what we're committed to: writing and recording. Uh, doing a couple of videos, doing some interviews and in support of a record and for that album cycle. Um, the band is actually owned by the label, um, but I'm a key member, as is Dino. Um, and then beyond that point, it really depends on the success of the band, you know, the project, uh, whether or not it moves forward. Uh, for instance, um, I did a project with Frontiers uh, some years back called uh, Sweet and Lynch with Michael Sweet. And uh, that turned into a two-album project with no touring. And I've done a number of those. And I enjoy doing them because, uh, it, you know, it's a change of pace for me. You know, instead of being in the same band, doing the same record every year, year in and year out with the same guys, it makes life a little more interesting and um broadens my horizons a little bit and, and, and challenges me, which I, I need. Yeah. Which, which is nice. Um, well, all right, let me, let me get away from that one for a second. Cause there's another one that's been really good and it's a great band. It's the one with Ray Luzier and Doug Pinnock, the uh, KXM. And of course, uh, the latest album, uh, came out earlier this year, circle of dolls. Talk to me about that band, because that's the one where I feel it's not a project. This is the one where I feel we could be talking in 20 years from now, and it'll be like the seventh album and the band. Uh, talk to me about that one, because that, that that one's from the heart, right? That's that's a really great one. You guys, Ray and Doug. Yeah. I mean, all music is written from the heart, uh, hopefully, and you know, ideally. Uh, um, so there's no distinction in that sense between one project or another, whether it's docking stuff or stuff we wrote in the garage when we were kids or one of these more current projects I'm doing. But the uh, concept is different uh, with KXM compared to, uh, you know, in comparison to the other projects in that, um, as I've said many times and explained in many other interviews, uh, we record our records on the spot. We compose on the spot in a period of about two weeks. And you know, write a song, record it in the studio. No pre-meditation, no pre-production, uh, no outside writing um, is allowed. Um, so we just go in and we riff uh, literally and figuratively off the top of our head and uh, see what happens. And it always happens. So it's a wonderful chemistry and it's a unique um, kind of project. And 
we haven't found any reason to stop doing it. So every two years we do a, we meet for two weeks and um, hang out and have a blast and uh, watch the magic happen. And, and it's great magic. Uh, all right. So there, there's a bunch of other projects that I'll, I'll get to eventually from end machine to ultraphonics and stuff. But uh, recently, no, I got to, I got to uh, interject for a second and I'm sorry to, uh, read, yeah. but you know, I, I do these interviews and then I, I, I end up, um, you know, there's so much ground to cover because I'm doing a lot of different projects. That's right. And it's, um, it gets to the point of saturation, uh, even for myself. Um, so I got to imagine there's, there's fatigue on the listeners end here. Um, you know, listen, we don't want to hear about, you know, what a genius you are in your 12 projects and how you can do everything, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I wonder about that, you know? So, um, you know, if I, if I have a, an artist that I really love and care about and care about their musical direction, I would be inundated if Jeff Beck came on, did an interview and talked to me about eight different projects he's involved in. You know, I, I, I you know what I want to see? Jeff Beck and the Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart. Right. First two albums or Wired or whatever it is, you know. Um, so, and that's my own damn fault for, you know, kind of not saying no to anything and, and doing all these projects because I can't, um, cause I have the opportunity to, um, and it's fun for me. Um, but it probably isn't the smartest thing in the world business wise or on a lot of other levels, but you know, I don't know why I had to say that, but I just felt like, you know, I needed to qualify all this for the listeners. Well, in fact, I, I was actually going to, to sort of take the interview arc into that direction and, and get into branding because, when you talk about being in a band or in a brand, you know, people love George Lynch in Lynch Mob and people love George Lynch in Dawkins. And I was going to ask, did you spread yourself too thin? Is there a point where you you damage the brand by being in so many different projects where people just go, oh, he's on that too? Come on. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, on that, in that sense, it, 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 it is damaging and, and it isn't smart business at all um you know it probably is better to be more economical with your output and make everything you put out um you know make people wait for it work it you know go out tour every project every record that you do in support of it and that kind of thing that's the way to do it but you know having said that i did that for most of my adult life and my career um you know i did all the you know, annual album cycles with my one band and, uh, um, always did all the support, took a little break, did it again, 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 over and over and over again for decades. And I get to the point now in my life where I'm, I'm kind of getting off that, that, uh, or I have gotten off that, that, uh, that wheel, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm just not going to be a slave to that anymore because it's too confining and I really want to enjoy what I'm doing. And I enjoy playing with other people and being challenged um, because it helps me grow as not just a guitar player, but as a, as a writer, as a composer and as a person. So, um, and it's enjoyable. It's fun. You know, it's, it's fun to, to mix it up and do different things and um, keep my brain, uh, uh, you know, hopefully operating at a little bit higher level so that I can produce better 
but better song. But you should music. be you should be afforded that luxury at this point in your career. I mean, if this was 1985 or 1986, and you're trying to establish something, it would be like, oh, what is he doing? But by 2019, you've been on the wheel for 35 years. It's like, hey, if I, if I want to do ultraphonics with the guy from Living Color, I'm going to do ultraphonics with the guy from Living Color. I mean, right? You, yeah, you've earned and, it. And I'm telling you, a lot of times, you know, the, the, you know, people may think, oh, he's just chasing the dollar. Go, well, that's probably, you know, a, a good percentage of these projects. Uh, definitely no dollar justification in it whatsoever. Um, Project Infidelica would be one I'd name just off the top of my head. It's dollar negative for me. It was a lot of work, and I loved every minute of it. You know, and we we actually toured in that project. That was the that was the project before Ultraphonics with um, uh, the singer from Fishbone and the bass player from War. And uh, so, uh, you know, you, what you said is is correct as far as my perspective um, in that. You know, if I were in a gigantic, universally known, established band, of course, it would be probably commercial suicide, you know, to change my change stylistically. Um, you know, if you're ACDC, nobody wants to hear ACDC play reggae music or do <laughs> do anything other than what they do or Van Halen or Judas Priest or, you know, any of big, gigantic established bands. But I'm not that. So... You know, it's a double-edged sword. I, um, you know, I'm uh, not a household commodity, and I'm not a a billionaire. But at the same time, it that's afforded me the flexibility and the freedom to do what I want, and it has not pigeonholed me to a huge extent. In some people's eyes, it has, but you know, Mm, I don't think you're pigeonholed. But all right, so let me ask you about then. You know, being in a huge established band like a priest and like that, do you think had had the personalities worked out that you could have worked Dawkin into that kind of of band that that could tour and do reunion shows and be part of stadium, you know, stadium shows with Motley Crue in twenty nine? Like, did you sort of look back and at what happened in Dawkin and go, hmm, if only? Well, yeah, that's an old story. Absolutely, you know, uh, Don. And this is—I'm not saying this in any kind of, you know, accusatorial way or anything, uh, or even in a negative way. It just is what it is. It's a decades-old story now, but and we've all gone on and, and been fine uh, in our careers and so forth. But um, you know, Don took a gamble and uh, gambled that that um, you know he could disband the group and and take off on his own and you know, um, keep that uh, momentum going, uh, that we had built over, you know, roughly 10 years. And, uh, you know, to a large extent that was misguided and maybe he took a chance. Uh, the, the, the problem I had with that was that, you know, the rest of the band suffered because of that, you know, arguably in a lot of ways. So, um, but if we had what we'd all worked for kind of, you know, ripped out from under us um, when it came time for the big payoff, which we were at. There's a point, there's a critical point in a band's career, at least in those days where um, you kind of reach the event horizon, you know, um, and, uh, and it's a point of critical mass where uh, when your record deal is up for renegotiation on a major label, 
um, and your sales have been accelerating and the band is on an upward trajectory, uh, those two uh, metrics are gold. That's where you want to be. And that's where your managers come in and, and um, you get paid. And you pretty much get established for the rest of your career or your life as long as you don't completely screw everything up. And it's pretty hard to screw that up. So um, Motley had just gone through that. Uh, Anthrax was also on our label, went through that. Uh, uh, Metallica, who was our, man- our, our manager, also managed them. Def Leppard. A lot of other bands we saw around that period of time were going through that. And we understood that. And, um, and so it was really a wonderful point in our careers. Uh, we were all looking forward to the renegotiation and we were finally going to step up after, you know, being an opening support act for 10 years, working hard on the road, uh, working really hard on, on making better albums every single time out, you know, and when we double tripled our sales from our previous records, like arguably writing better records and better sounding records and also by supporting records by touring uh, incessantly. And then when it came time for us to reap the rewards of that, it was pretty much stolen out from under us by one of us, <laughs> one of our, our, our brothers, you know, and, and that was very hard for me to take. And, um, you know, so, you know, it's one thing when it happens due to, let's say an outside force, like, um, um, you know, company uh, president or something, company, right. Uh, yeah, unscrupulous manager or something or uh, whatever. But this was from inside and that's, that was really painful. Um, so yeah, I think we would have, I mean, that's not that I think I, I'm sure we would have, you know, been more of a solid entity that could have withstood even, you know, the decline in that kind of music's appeal through the next decade. And, and, been just uh you know sort of a a commodity in rock you know um but um you know doesn't do any good to think about that (laughs) but having said that there is some things happening next year which i think are along somewhat along those lines that you know sort of you know put a little bit of band-aid on that shotgun loop for me yeah, so so I want to talk about that. Yesterday on the uh, Doc and Facebook page, they put out a um, sort of a poster, if you want, and it says uh, Doc and Lynch Mob reunion, uh, Lita Ford. Uh, there's going to be obviously some kind of tour. Explain explain what kind of tour we're looking at, what the format we're looking at, and sort of how many dates are we looking at. Well. Listen, nothing set in stone. So, you know, I'm going to just preface this by saying that, that, you know, everything could fall apart tomorrow. Um, and for who knows what reason, you know, people have medical issues, you know, I could have some, something come up or, you know, who knows what, but assuming that everything goes according to plan, um, there will be dozens of dates next year. Uh, if not many, many dozens. So, but that's hard to, determine at this point but right now there's there's a there's a good solid number on the books um but everything's tentative until it happens <laughs> so uh, no absolute certainty that things will will happen but um at this point they are happening and what what it is is lynch mob would uh you know open the show uh play an hour or something and then Doc comes out 
you know, with Don's current band and plays, uh, you know, an hour and a half or whatever. And then I come out, uh, on my own and play with Don, uh, for like three or four songs at the end of the, at the end of the night. For for the encores, which is very cool. Actually. I I really like the concept. I think it's a great, great concept and I'm looking forward to it. And hopefully we can get it up to, uh, to Canada and, and, you know, and maybe get a live album or something out of it. Um, does it lead to a to a to a recording of a new song or a new something just for the tour, or is it really we're just going to go do this tour and we'll see how it goes? No, no, no new song or anything. I mean, we did uh, we did that with the last thing that we that we recorded uh, when we reformed a couple of years ago for those uh, whatever it was six shows or something. Yeah, in Japan. Um, we did yeah, we did the live record and we had a new bonus a bonus studio track. Um, Another day, I think it was called, and um, so no, there's there's no plans to do any recording. It wouldn't be actually any time right now because I'm in the uh, I'm uh, finishing up a couple other records right now, including a Lynch Mob record that will be out next year. So that's pretty good timing because um, we'll have a Lynch Mob will have a new release. Um, in time for next year's touring. Um, and talk to me a little bit about that. Cause you, you've had uh, Andrew Freeman who came in, you had Jimmy Danda. Are they part of the project or, or the album that's going to be released in 2020? Or is it a lynch mob with a different group of people that are recording? Uh, well, Jimmy's no, Jimmy and I, uh, worked on the record, uh, initially, um, writing together as a team. And then I kind of, you know, we, we, we came up with some really great, energetic badass stuff and then then i sort of took everything and moved it to into my studio and did my thing to it and and uh then uh we um we brought in joe retta um who's working on vocals as you know now uh so the record is all written and recorded except for the vocals and so um uh but yeah, it's, uh, you know, Jimmy's in, on, on the records, but Sean McNabb is not. Um, and, uh, uh, obviously a, a new vocalist, but, you know, Lynch Mod has been a revolving door now for, for many, many years. So, you know, the idea, um, of having, uh, this brotherhood, this, this band of, you know, almost like family that, you know, people identify with the, with the personalities and, and um sort of grow with the band and 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 feel like the band is like family and something they can depend on um i lost that a lot of years ago i mean with the initial breakup of the band back in the early 90s and then of course many subsequent breakups when i had a lot of attempt i made a lot of attempts at, at, at um reconstructing the band in that way to where uh everybody felt invested in uh, felt a sense of ownership and pride and and for some reason uh which i still have never fully figured out it, it it was always the worst decision i could ever make was to try to pull that off and i still cannot figure out why that that always occurred but every time i would try to put it together you know in a business sense and so forth where everybody was you know an owner in the in the group um it would backfire on me and the band would implode, usually in spectacular fashion and pretty quickly. So I'm not sure. Uh, so I got to the point where it, 
it has just been a revolving door. And I've not only actually had to accept that and learn to accept it, but actually embraced it and look at it genuinely like a good thing. Um, because uh, I look at it this way. Um, when you have a legacy band, you know, generally they kind of play the same songs. They have their hits that are 30 years old, like we do or Dawkin or Rat or anybody else. Very white, quite right. You know, they go out and play this, the hits and everything else to, and to try to play something new. Everybody hates it, of course. So uh, having a revolving door actually gives us uh, an opportunity to change things up and, and be a little more interesting to watch. And and give you something to look forward to. So you go to see Lynch Mob and like, okay, maybe Robert Mason was singing last year, but this time you're coming and it's going to be Oni Logan or it's going to be uh, Andrew Freeman or you know, and who's going to be on drums? Oh, it's Brian Titchy. Next year, uh, Brian Titchy's coming back. Um, instead of Jimmy DeAnd. Um, so you know that that excites people. I think sometimes or at least keeps their interest perked. Uh, and uh, so I don't look at it as a negative. No, and, and also, creatively, it's got to be interesting because you, you get the, this new energy from the players coming in. So I'm with you that I do see it as a positive. And you're right, fans do seem to enjoy the fact that they have their favorite lynch mob singer. They have their favorite lynch mob drummer. And, of course, they're really there for you. Let, let's, let's, be, let's be straight up. You're, you're the main attraction, right? You're, you're the star, if you want. So, um, Well, I mean, uh, you yeah. know, you know, I, I have my job to do and I do that, but I, I always felt Lynch Bob was really a band force. I mean, I'm, I'm not like Steve Vai where, you know, you could have faceless guys back there. It doesn't matter. I mean, it's, I think much more about the song and the total and, and everybody else in the band. And they're always good players. I mean, you go see Lynch Mob. I mean, you're not going to see slouches. I mean, the, the singer is going to be great. Um, you know, the, the core band, the rhythm section is, is going to be real good and consistent. And we try, and the other thing about Lynch Mob is I, and I've always tried to make sure that we have a, a bit of sort of like just shooting from the hip thing about us live. Um, where, you know, we always try to make it like snowflakes, you know, it's always, every show's different. Uh, we always have a jam section where we just kind of go off and, and literally go off. Not, not like, we have a planned thing, um, but really just completely freeform improvising. Like I just throw something out there and uh, a lot of nights, you know, if I throw it out there, Jimmy will pick it up. And once Jimmy comes in, we're the train has left the station. We got to go. Everybody's got to pick up and, and, and see where it goes. And sometimes it falls apart and sometimes it doesn't, but it's, uh, it, it's, that's something unique to this band. I think, you know, that we can, sort of improvise and be spontaneous. Yeah, it's great. And in fact, uh, just yesterday I was talking to uh, Frank Marino and he he was talking a little bit about the same stuff that they do with Mahogany Rush about how they just go, I'm just going to play this riff and let's see who, who jumps on this train and let's see where it goes. And so it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because he, he is, you, you have cited him as an influence before. So it's nice oh, to yeah. see that kind of, yeah, Frank Frank is great. He, he lives right down the street from me. We, we talk actually very very often and he's he's got a very interesting vibe when it comes to rehearsal and and shows it's it's really sort of loosey good anyway it's 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 great I, I love that kind of that spontaneity in music uh i will i will finish and i on, think that's a i think that's a product of the of the era that we grew up in 
because that was a thing in the late 60s and the early 70s and even into the mid 70s that was you know improvising was a thing i mean that you did just out of necessity and i grew up with that and um so uh i value that and i think it's um i've made this uh kind of sort of announced sort of explained it this way before but I sort of look at it like for the audience, whether they're appreciating it or not, um, but they're experiencing the creative moment versus the recreative moment. So, um, you know, for musicians, it's very exciting. The, one of the most exciting thing a musician can do is come up with a, you know, the genesis of an idea and then watch and, ex- and, and watch it grow into something. And if you can do that live, like Hendrix did, uh, like Zeppelin did, like Cream did, and the band, the band, you know, a lot of the bands that we, that we, I grew up with, um, and learned from. Uh, to me, that is really uh, the core of what we do. Um, you know, it's how we write songs. It's how we started when we were in the garage. You know, you know, and when we we're 15 years old. I mean that's what it was. It was improvising. That's how we conceive of solos. And, and that's what's going on in our heads when we're imagining these things that we want to eventually turn into songs and, and records. Uh, they're all just jams in our head, you know? Um, I agree. Kind of an overlooked thing in rock and roll, I think, in, at least in this era. Well, it is. And, and I'll tell you, as, as an older rock fan growing up, I used to collect bootlegs like you couldn't believe because I liked listening to the different version of, you know, the different version of this song and that song because, oh, in St. Louis they played it this way, but in Cleveland they played it that way. And I've stopped recently because when you get a a, a live show, it's just, oh, it's the same freaking tape that they ran the night before. And it's like, ugh, really? Like, come on. It's the same 10 songs. They're played the exact same 10 ways. They got the the keyboards and the backing vocals program, and it's like, but that's not what a live show is. A live show is what Lynch Mob does. It's what Frank Marino does. That, that's a live show, and that's what it should be. Yeah. But, yeah, you know. So, by the way, you know, it, you know, kudos to you for keeping it live, by the way. You're, you're, you're one of the rare breed, unfortunately, these days. You should not be the rare breed. You should be just like everybody else, where everybody comes and plays a live show, not this pre-taped, pre-triggered, ugh, yuck. It's hard to not fall uh, prey to, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's such a, you know, it, it, you know, when you see another band and they sound perfect and they sound like an album, you know, it makes you question your own, you know, abilities and your own uh, performance because you're like, well, maybe our sloppiness is not a good thing. (laughs) Uh, these guys are coming out and they sound like a machine and, you know, play with lots of bands like that. And it can be intimidating. So you, there, there is, but then you go see the real thing and, and, you know, you go see, you listen to Bob Marley or, or, you know, real music, real bands, rage or something. They're just doing it. And then, ah, oh, okay, this is what it's about. It's just Tom Petty. It's just music. ZZ Top. Yeah. <laughs> just real music yes that, that that's what it is and i'm telling you if frank marina rolls into your town give me a call i'll get you on the guest list and you'll go check it out and you will have the the time of your life because that's what the live experience is supposed to be it's supposed to be I, live 
I saw Frank uh, and uh, Rain on Mahogany Rush, and I, I, I can't remember exactly the year. I just want to say 76. That might be way off. Uh, open up for Queen, uh, Sheer Heart Attack Tour at the uh, a venue in San Francisco, uh, Fillmore, I believe, somewhere west. And um, I talked to Frank about that show. Um, and um, I remember, you know, I was so excited to see him. And I'm, I'm a huge fan, as is Zach Wilde, by the way, and a lot of other people. Oh, yeah. Wilde oh, yeah. Felt that for him. And I and I could tell he wasn't having the best show, and I actually asked him about that, and he said he remembers that show specifically, and pretty much hated the whole tour, but that show in particular because they just sandbagged him so badly, and you know sandbag. And most people, I'm sure, understand what sandbag right. is, but in case you don't, sabotaged him. Where, where did you say that yeah, was? What yeah. city? San, San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco, Fillmore West. Right. Heart I am looking it up. Uh, we have uh, March 30th, 1975 in San Francisco, and it's uh, Mahogany Rush and Queen. There you go, 1975. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> wow. I was there. Yep. What a tour. That must have been epic. I mean, that, that, was, that was really sort of the, 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 the beginning of Queen in a sense. Uh, you know, they, they were, yeah. Oh, well, hey, look at that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, they had the first two records, like the Ogre Battle records with Queen 1 and 2, which were a little different stylistically. They were still in their formative stages. They hadn't really developed into what we know of you know, the, them as now. Um, but Sheer Heart Attack was their, they'd really come into themselves. You know, that was just a wall-to-wall, incredible, you know, magnificent record. And, and I saw them at, you know, right at their peak. I mean, it was unbelievable really unbelievable but I, I felt bad for frank and i i was you know because i could tell he he could do it and he wanted to do it but he was just he was so in the dark on stage i could barely see him he gave no sound check the whole tour um they sandbagged his you know his sound and his lights and the stage room and it's demoralizing you know and um terrible but i did remember one thing it just as a gear guy because i'm just all about the amps you know everything whenever i go to a concert all i care about is the gear you know i look at everything and and he had one of everything on stage which was always kind of stuck with me you know the marshall and a high watt and another amp and another amp and another all these stacks and it was just phenomenal and uh but uh you know he i he's like one of my original you know um you know, I mean, I have, I, I'm really a student of every guitar player, but I mean, he was one of the big ones too for me. Um, and uh, I mean, he did have that Hendrix thing going on, you know, kind of a white Hendrix, but <laughs> a little bit uh, like Uli John Roth with that with that Hendrix thing, but yeah, 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 he's the Canadian white Hendrix, I guess. The, the, right? And and he's got this new live DVD live at the Agora, which is six hours long. If you haven't picked it up, you, you definitely got to get it because it it is. It is spectacular. It just, it's like, oh. ooh. And, and he was telling me yesterday, well, we did a 12-hour concert, and I had to whittle it down to six hours. And I'm like, a 12-hour concert? Like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? There, there is such a thing? Yeah, apparently he, he just uh, got into a groove with his band, and they just started playing, and a jam led to another jam. And 12 hours later, the show was over. And I'm like, 12, 12 hours? 12 hours? <laughs> Don't you have to I pee? <laughs> 
<laughs> you know? Well, that's why God invented pampers, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> I know. Uh, you know, and, and by the way, since we're talking sheer heart attack, right, maybe maybe we can uh, work up a version of Stone Cold Crazy for for the next uh, Lynch Mob too uh, to celebrate all of this coming together. But uh, George, uh, mm. always always a pleasure, by the way. And uh, I I know we we we've talked about how you sort of spread yourself with different bands, but I got to say, uh, they've always been quality. The KMX stuff is is great, and and the End Machine album, which I know is probably just a project you're just going to do one off. But just to hear you with with Jeff and Mick and, and, and Robert Mason, who's just a vocal god, um, of course, you know, been in Lynch Mob too, um, that, was, that was a really great album. So I'm glad you guys did it. It, it, was, it was a nice sort of bow to all the eras and all the bands and sort of tied all together. So, so good on you for that. Well, then I'll just keep doing that then, since you like it so much. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Uh, looking, <laughs> yeah, and and hopefully the uh, the Lynch Mob uh, Doc and Lita Ford tour or or a version of will get up here to Canada. And uh, on that, merci beaucoup. Thank you so much. A great, great pleasure as oh, always. Thank you, and I appreciate the French lessons. Yeah, anytime. Uh, and uh, yeah, okay. I, I will. I will. I will give your best to Frank when I call him later. Cheers. Do that, please. Thank you. Merci. Okay. Bye bye. Cheers. Talk soon. This has been Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. For more exclusive content and interviews, subscribe on iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, on YouTube, and many more. Follow Mitch on all the socials, especially Twitter, at Mitch LaFond, and on Instagram, at Mitch underscore LaFond. Get your Mitch merch now at loudtracks.com slash Mitch.